Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their hellhound roast, witch's brew, devil's night roast, or sinful delight, Order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. About three months before he passed on, I was afforded the opportunity of a lifetime to interview Stuart Gordon. And what was already a tremendous honor, looking back, is made even more special by knowing that this was one of the last interviews he ever gave. So this being episode number 50, I really could not be more proud than to present this conversation that I got to have with Stuart. When I spoke to him, Stuart was right on the heels of completing his autobiography, so he was naturally in a very reflective mood. So we talked a lot about his major life lessons that he learned as a director, as well as the kind of connective themes that presented themselves throughout the course of his career, all of which he was able to realize retrospectively looking back, having written his autobiography. Stewart was beyond a horror director. He was an innovator. He was a tantalizer. He was a showman. He was a director that made you think, made you laugh, and made you squirm all in the same movie. His work defied at convention and was beyond subversive. Stewart didn't just push boundaries. He bulldozed over them. He was also one of the most prolific adapters of H.P. Lovecraft and famously brought his own wonderful signature interpretations to his work. So in October, to commemorate the 30th anniversary of Reanimator, I'll also be releasing a Remembering Stuart Gordon episode where I sit down with some of Stuart's friends and collaborators and hear what they learned from him. It's going to feature Larry Fessenden, Graham Skipper, and Brian Usna. So look out for that on October 18th. Anyway, now for your listening pleasure, please enjoy this conversation with the late, great master of horror, Stuart Gordon. Stuart, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm a tremendous fan, and uh, this is this is definitely a big honor. So thank you, first and foremost. No, it's my pleasure. 
So there's a real undeniable level of subversion to all your films, to put it lightly. And one thing I read about was the psychedelic political satire version of Peter Pan that you had done and the fact that you got arrested. Yeah. So what I'm curious about is what level, what effect did that incident have on your work? I mean, I would imagine that something like that during a formidable time period, like being in college, would probably make you more determined than ever to make subversive work. Is that? accurate well it, it definitely got you know a lot of people's attention um you know it, it became sort of a national news uh, as a matter of fact i remember johnny carson making jokes about it on his show oh wow um and uh i mean it's just the whole idea of you know psychedelic peter pan right all, all, all by itself was enough to just kind of get people sort of provoke people and and um get their attention right did that did being arrested for your art give you this kind of more definitiveness of purpose to make art that does push the boundaries and make art that might be a little dangerous and not quite make the type of art that society might not quite be ready for i mean did that give you any sort of well you know it's funny it's funny i had done you know we had started a theater company i had done a play in, in you know, at the University of Wisconsin, called the Game Show. Mm-hmm. That was a, that was the first thing, and that was a play in which we made the audience believe that they were locked in the theater, and uh, it was very um, uh, extreme. And um, we had plants in the audience who, you know, the audience believed were uh, you know fellow audience members who were beaten and and um, oh wow, you know. Uh, uh, you know, kind of, you know, humiliated and so forth. And, and, um, so, you know, that show, that show got a, a, a huge amount of attention and that led to, you know, one of the professors at the university uh, offering to give me a, a program that I could, you know, a summer program where we could produce five plays. Um, and the idea was that they should all be kind of experimental mm-hmm. theater. Um, uh, and, we did all kinds of things. Um, we did a production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that started at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and um, we, the first act was done um, conventional way with men and women, and the second act was done with all women, and the third act was done with all men. Oh, um, wow. Um, so we were doing all kinds of stuff. We did a production of Titus Andronicus that was done non-verbally, in a in a burned out building that was you know there was just a basically a, a crater where the building had been and the audience sat on their sides of this pit looking down and watching this watching this you know these these uh, uh, characters you know it's, you know it's Shakespeare's most violent play right um, and uh, you know tons of tons of blood and, and we did it all with you know instead of two we got rid of shakespeare's language and did it all with just grunting and sort of caveman style um <laughs> so we were doing all we were doing pretty crazy stuff um and peter pan was the last play in that series the common thread with all of those different productions sounds like you kind of intentionally put yourself in a very challenging scenario as a uh, as a director by by doing Shakespeare without words and doing big elaborate plays in 
small locations and things like that. And it sounds like that may have been by design. So what I'm curious about is, did how, how much did that contribute to your ability as a director producer later on? Because from everything that I've learned in talking to other directors, one of the most important qualities in being a director, if you don't have those big, crazy Hollywood budgets, is resourcefulness. And it sounds like your kind of training ground for being a filmmaker was was these productions because you were you were kind of forcing yourself to be very resourceful from an artistic perspective is that accurate yeah well also the, the you know the thing that sort of turned me around was the production when i was you know i didn't direct it but i was in this production of um a play called marat sad mm-hmm. which is uh which which is a, a a play that's put on by the inmates of an insane asylum um and uh, the idea is that at any moment the um, actors could go crazy and jump into the audience and start attacking people. Um, and that turned me around because I used to think that theater was just sort of uh, like a bad movie. Um, <laughs> and and uh, then I realized after doing Maratzan that theater, it, it's a living process and that the audience and the actors are in it together and and are creating the artwork um i think it's the only art form that where that is where that actually happens where you know the the participant the audience participates in the creation of the work right um and uh that that opened me up to the idea of the game show and and then um you know wanted to keep pushing those buttons and I can, you know, continued it all the way through my movie career as well. Right. And it seems like theater has been a real common thread in your career. I mean, obviously, before you started doing movies, you were a very prolific theater director and producer. Yeah, I did theater for 15 years before I did any movies. Um, you know, we started the organic theater, my wife, Carolyn, and I. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that theater was, you know, we did 35 plays. Um, yeah. So, you know, theater is really where it all started for me. And you seem, and you return to it as well. I mean, obviously with Reanimator, the musical, and what did the theater enable you with in terms, because there's a lot of, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of actors who, there were big Hollywood actors like Al Pacino, and they return to the stage because there's something that theater gives them that either movies doesn't, or something that theater gives them that contributes to what they can bring to movies. And Yeah, I mean, that's true. True, also of all of the British actors, you know, they, um, Ian McKellum and Helen Mirren, they all they do movies and theater all the time. Yeah, uh, you know, they would, you know, it's not an either or; they do both. And and um, I, I always think that that uh, there's things that you can do, and you know, that, that they're perfectly suited to theater that aren't suited for movies. Right. And one thing I thought was really interesting—it's it's pretty common knowledge—but when you did Reanimator. You mostly worked with most of your actors had a history being stage actors, and from what I understand, you would rehearse re- the the rehearsals you held for Reanimator were structured like theater rehearsals. In other words, you would run through the entire movie as a as a structured rehearsal, which I thought was fascinating, and it definitely led. Yeah, and I mean, from watching the movie, the, the performances are pretty seamless. As is the level of chemistry between all the characters, and I mean. It seems like that 
could be significantly contributable. I mean, obviously to great directing, but the rehearsal process, I would imagine, really must have, the, the way that you approach the rehearsal process really must have solidified those performances and everybody's sense of story. Could you talk about that? Well, well, the thing that was amazing to me was when I started doing movies and discovered that very seldom are movies rehearsed right. at all. That everybody just shows up on the first day of shooting and, you know, off you go. Um, and to me, you know, there, there, there are exceptions. I mean, I think Coppola likes to rehearse and, and um, you know, there are other directors who, who uh, build in a rehearsal period, you know, into their um, preparation for, you know, a film. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's rare, yeah. And uh, you know, I can't imagine. You know, I mean, you know, and it's funny because you always start out doing the first day of shooting. It's always some very, usually some intimate scene or you know a love scene or something where, and these people are just meeting each other for the first time right. usually. <laughs> right. But your rehearsal process obviously got the cast very used to each other and established a real kind of chemistry that all of them seem to really have. Did you replicate that with the rest of your movies? Yeah, I did. I, I, did. I always rehearse. I always build in at least a week of rehearsal. And would you rehearse most of your movies from beginning to end the way that you did Reanimator as if it was a play? Yes. Because I think, you know, you, you really have to be able to sort of see it. You know, when you're making a movie, it, everything is all, you know, you shoot everything that you know takes place in one set, for example, and one could one could be at the beginning, one could be at the middle, one could be at the end. Um, so to have the ability to take a look at the whole thing in context, and you know, um, I, I think it's it's very helpful. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And I'm sure the actors love it too, because I mean, obviously, you were working with stage actors or or actors yeah, well, who. Yeah, funny. The only actor I've ever worked with who didn't want to rehearse was Dennis Hopper. <laughs> That's and kind it was of surprising. because Dennis believed that acting was a very spontaneity, spontaneous process, and he felt that it was by rehearsing he was losing the spontaneity, um, which I, I've never run into that. You know, I've never run into that before or since. Um, and the thing about Dennis Hopper was that because of the, his way of approaching his work, his first take was usually the best one. Right. So if you, so if you're if the other actors weren't ready from the very first take, they were in trouble. Um, and um, so, uh, but most actors they see rehearsal as, as a great gift and, and, um, you know, it's something that's usually denied them. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Hopper must be a, uh, was, is he a method actor? It sounds like it. I think he was, you know, suppose what I'd read, you know, what he told me was that he was, he learned his craft, you know, he learned about acting, uh, from James Dean when huh. he did rebel without a cause. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And, he just... and, um, he, you know, one of the things that Dennis, I mean, I learned a lot from Dennis Hopper, actually. He was he was a very fascinating guy, because one of the things he told me was, he said, you know, um, movies are only um, 100 years old. And I was part of that process for half of that time. Oh, wow. 
So I was there for so I was there for you know fifty. I, you know, I was making movies for fifty years. Yeah, no, that's pretty incredible. Well, speaking of that, with the biography that's been written, I'm sure that this was a very reflective time period for you in working on this biography. It was. It was. It was almost like being an archaeologist, you know, in a way, because you know, trying to figure out, you know, which happened first. When did this happen? You know, and, and uh, <laughs> it's forensic. I used to get into arguments with my wife, you know, Carolyn, about it because you know she said, "No, that's not how it happened." Interesting. And eventually, I had to. I had to say. Um, I said, well, then you write your own book. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Rashomon quality to to writing a biography. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's you know you're not you know it takes a while to kind of piece it all together, and I, and I and I ended up having to talk to a lot of different people who were and to get their sort of uh, takes on how how it all went down. Well, in doing that, were there any common threads that you identified as being present throughout the course of your life that you may not have been aware of initially as it was happening, but retrospectively, were there any common threads that kind of contributed to your career success? I, I, well, you, you, it's funny. When you look at your life like that, um, you start seeing a pattern, and, and you see that you keep making the same mistake over and over again. <laughs> Uh, um, and for me, it was that I was always in a big hurry. I was always rushing. You know, I always wanted to get something going as quickly as possible. And there were times when I, you know, projects got postponed, um, and it turned out that the postponement was good for the project because uh, it gave me, a, you know, a little more time to think about what I was doing. Um, so yeah, yeah, you do start seeing, you know patterns and and um and you and you have regrets about things hmm. well i would imagine that the inclination to want to not well yeah to to want to do things fast and to want to get things done in a business like hollywood where people will take meetings about a project for years on end it seems like that's probably i would imagine a good instinct to have but is that not necessarily the case as you as you reflect i mean do, is there a level of do you think that directors shouldn't be in such a rush or what is the kind of balance between driving projects forward i i i, I felt you know, looking back that I, I you know i might think my life would have worked out a little bit better and differently if i had not been in such a big hurry um you know take your time and I noticed that there are some actors, you know, some directors who, you know, take a lot of time between their projects. I mean, look at Jim Cameron, for example, you know, uh, or, or, or even Quentin Tarantino. Right. Um, you know, they don't, they don't feel like they have to have them be constantly in production. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the case of Tarantino, that's by design. He, from what I understand, he studied the career path of a lot of other directors and would notice that the more directors would put out, the less powerful they would be. So if they don't put out as much material, but everything they put out is just dynamo and they're constantly keeping fans waiting for the next movie, that gives you a sense of power. That's, I think that's why he's only doing 10 movies, actually. Well, he says that. I'm not sure if, that's, if he's really going to follow through on that or not, you know. Another question on the topic of acting. I mean, you've talked extensively about the importance of good acting, particularly in horror. And I hate to say this because I'm a huge horror fan, but the genre isn't exactly known for its quality of acting. But your movies all have very compelling performances. Um, 
When you started out and you wanted to get into horror, where did that conviction to make sure that good actors were a part of it? Where did that did that come from? I would imagine that must have come from your theater background because I mean the better the performance is and the more compelling the characters, the better the horror element works. And I feel like the performance is such a huge part of that. Yeah, well, I think the better, you know, the you know, so you know, horror is really about making our audiences believe these outlandish and impossible things. So you really need good actors to, to be able to pull that off. Um, you know, people look, there's a, there's a tendency, to, uh, you know, amongst, I, I always think sort of snobs to look down on horror, but, but, uh, you know, you look at the history of movies and it started with horror, you know, pretty much. And, uh, so I think that the, um, you know, you, you, you know, nowhere do you need better actors than in a horror movie. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes a lot, a lot of sense. And I had a conversation with Larry Fessenden recently, and he mentioned that horror is the only genre that unflinchingly faces reality. I mean, horror obviously historically has been known as a vehicle for social commentary. And it's just a way to to channel collective cultural angst into a movie that is that's more unflinching than any other genre. And throughout the course of your career, did you utilize horror as a way to either reflect certain social anxieties or certain larger messages? Because it it feels like that there are larger messages behind your movies. Oh horror. yeah, I mean, horror gives you the opportunity to, to discuss things that people don't want to talk about. Um, I mean, the main one being death. You know, uh, Stephen King once said that horror is, is a rehearsal for your own death. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, which is we're just so we're we're afraid of it, but we're also we're also fascinated by it. Yeah. Yeah, and Eli Roth had mentioned in an interview that in in the case of all of his movies, he makes sure that at the heart of his movies is something that legitimately scares him. Like his first movie, Cabin Fever, was based on this weird skin disease that he contracted and that he started losing control of being able to treat it, and that scared him. But were there any actual fears that you had that were at the root of any of your movies? Oh gosh, I think every single one of them, you know, is, is about something that's a very real, real, real fear. Um, I mean, it has to be real for, for it to, to really work. Yeah. And you know, I, when I was when I did Reanimator, and I, um, I kind of mentioned this is the beginning of my book. It's it was, you know, they um, I, I had a a mentor who said to me, you know, the first day of shooting, you need to talk, tell your crew why you want to make this movie. That's interesting. And, um, uh, and get them all on, you know, everybody has to be on the same page. I mean, the reason that there are so many bad movies is because you've got so many different points of view and you've got to get, bring them all together into one, you know, everyone has to be making the same film. Um, and, uh, you know, I said, why, why, why do I want to make this movie? And it really, I realized that it was about, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was 14, my father died. And um, so, you know, the idea, I think, of Reanimator was finding, you know, the idea of bringing him back. And that, and that you know, I still have dreams about bringing him, him coming back to life sometimes. Um, 
and sometimes he is very much like a zombie or, uh, you know, you know he's, he's very messed up. Um, but I don't care. I'd rather have him back in, in a, you know, in a format that's not perfect than not to have him back at all. Um, and uh, so that once I realized that, that then everything kind of started falling into line, you know. And, and that's, you know... So, and, and, you know, horror is really always about subjects that people just don't want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of horror and subjects that people don't want to talk about, you've uh, been outspoken for saying that horror and sex go hand in hand and that the two of them and the juxtaposition of the two of them, which I thought was fascinating. You said that horror and sex go hand in hand because the two are life and death, which I never really thought about, but it does. Yeah, yeah. It makes a ton of sense. Um, I think it's the, the God's honest truth, but um, typically in the past sex and horror has frequently been referred to as being gratuitous, which I definitely don't agree with, but could you elaborate on why sex and horror are so interwoven? Well, like you said, it's the two sides of the same coin. And, and um, it's funny, you know, a few years ago there, this movie came out called the Serbian film. Oh yeah, I didn't see that. I don't have the balls to see that. <laughs> well, well, again, it's a it's a very sexual horror film, and and when I and I met, ran into the um, directors of that film, and they said, Stuart, this film was inspired by your work. Wow! And and I sort of then at that point I knew I had to see it, um, and it was one of those things that I couldn't really watch it all in one sitting. Um, it was very you know extreme. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it is the same, you know, you, you can't have one without the other really. And again, it kind of, and it kind of surprises me. And now it, it's interesting to me. One of the things that I found interesting was I watched, um, Game of Thrones and I was amazed at how much sex there was in that. Um, because, it, because for a long time, you know, you know, horror movies had become very um, puritanical. Uh, but uh, now I think we're getting back into the sexual aspects. It seems that way. It seems like it's culturally being embraced a little bit more, which I, I think it, it serves horror very, very well. I think the two, like you said, are, are very much intertwined. Yeah. Well, as far as horror movies... You're obviously probably somebody who's difficult to shock, but has there been anything recently, like in the past five or ten years, that has either left a scar or legitimately shook you to your core? Oh gosh, um, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think. Um, I, I guess you know, Serbian film really was the one that. that, that it really did kind of rock my world. Um, uh, but, um, you know, most of the stuff that I see, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, it seems kind of tame. So another thing about horror that I think that you, you did very beautifully was interweave comedy into it. And it didn't seem so intentional. In other words, reanimator has some very funny moments, but it doesn't feel like it's overly written as a comedy. Um, Except for the uh, get a job in a sideshow line, which 
always gets a laugh. <laughs> but other than that, there's a number of funny moments, but they don't feel like you intended. They don't feel like they're so tongue in cheek. It doesn't feel overly intentional in terms of in terms of comedy. And somewhere I read that the ba- the the right balance to aim for when it comes to balancing horror and comedy is to go eighty percent scary and twenty percent funny, which I thought was interesting. So I was wondering how how did you approach integrating comedy into horror? Boy, I, you know, I've never heard I've never heard that um, you know uh, mathematical equation before, but um, I, I don't think that you'll ever find an audience that wants to laugh more than a horror movie audience. Because you know, laughter is the antidote to, to fear. You know, if you if you're laughing, then you can't. Then you you know, it cancels out the fear. So you really want to laugh. Um, and uh, I always think it's a good idea to give an audience something where they can laugh, and it's not going to be at the expense of the movie. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the example I always like to give is the one in Jaws. You know, we need a bigger boat. Yeah. Um, uh, Gets a huge laugh, and it's, and it's because right before that, that line, you have this great big scare. Um, you know, you see the size of this creature, um, and uh, so you know, I think I think you know, give the audience what they want. Give them, give them a chance to, to laugh, and you know, in, in the laughter breaks the tension but then you can crank it up again right yeah i mean the scene the two seem to work beautifully as a back and forth kind of a dance like you build build tension and then you kind of have to relieve it a little bit with laughter post laughter the audience kind of thinks that they're safe again and then you can gear up another scare and i mean it's just something very kind of orchestral about uh about composing the two together when it's when when it's done right which i think is fascinating yeah, it is fun. So there's a real undeniable magic between you, Brian Usna, and, and Charles Band as well. Could you discuss the collaboration process and how you all were able to work together and why you think the collaboration worked so well? Well, I always like to say that Brian brings out the worst in me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he does, and... Um, you know when we when I when we met each other and he would you know we'd be talking about ideas for a scene. He would always find a way to top it. You know, like well, what if we do this instead of that? You know, would um, so you know I, I you know I, I really enjoy working with Brian because he you know can you top this is kind of the name of the game, right? Um, Charles Band, you know, has such a, it's almost like a child or a boy's love of, of, of scary stuff. And, you know, there's, there's just a, you know, at the basis of it all is, is just this love of, you know, these, these old, I mean, doing a movie, you know, I got a chance to do a dolls for, for Charlie Band. Right. And, um, which was, you know, to, you know, Getting doing a fairy tale essentially mm-hmm. um, as a scary, you know. Um, and I had just been reading this book by Bruno Bettelheim called *The Uses of Enchantment*, where um, you know he was saying that you know that uh, fairy tales, you know, should be scary. Uh, and you know, 
you know, that, that was what I was playing with, that, you know, on that film. Interesting. So Hitchcock puts himself in his movies. Scorsese likes to cast his mother in his movies. You're known to murder your wife in most of your movies. Whose idea was that? <laughs> True. <laughs> Whose idea was that? Well, I, you know, Carolyn has been, you know, an actress in my theater company. You know, she's been there from the very beginning. She started the organic theater with me. And, um, you know, in a horror movie, it's the death scenes that are the best scenes. You know, that's what, you know, if you're going to be in a horror movie, then you've, you know, you've got to have a magnificent death. death. So you're honoring her as an actor by giving her the best death scenes. Yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, that's where all the fun is, really, <laughs> in a horror film. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The last few questions, obviously you're a a big adapter of H.P. Lovecraft, so um, what is it about Lovecraft that you that, that made you constantly, or keep gravitating back towards his material? I think that Lovecraft stuff is... Um, he was so far ahead of his time that, you know, it still seems very fresh, you know, and, and, um, you know, it's, um, you know, Lovecraft, Lovecraft, there's so much of it that hasn't been made, hasn't been, you know, done on, on screen. So, um, you know, it's it's sort of like a treasure trove. Um, and it was funny, you know, when I was a kid, I used to go see these, um, you know, Edgar Allan Poe movies, um, and, uh, you know, with Vincent Price, and, and um, you know, we loved those, and so when we did, did Reanimator, we said, let's do a series of them, like uh, like the, the Poe movies. Oh, okay. Interesting. Kind of the way that Roger Corman did. Yeah, the Roger Corman movies. Were there any particular themes that were present in Lovecraft's work that particularly fascinated you? Well, Lovecraft is incredibly bleak, really. You know, um, I mean, the basic theme of Lovecraft is, um, you know, you're, you're, you're lu- you know, man is lucky to be ignorant because if he knew the truth, it would just drive him crazy. Um, so, you know, it's it's. Uh, it's a world view that you know is you know you, you you can't get too cynical for Lovecraft. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm sure a lot of people turn to you, a lot of aspiring filmmakers turn to you for advice. What is the most common advice that you give to aspiring directors? Well, one of the things that I've learned is never censor yourself. You know, um, I, know I did a movie called From Beyond. You know, it was it was one of my earliest movies, and um, and I had a scene in it where, uh, you know, one of the characters, you know, comes into a room and there's a woman, you know, that has been trussed up and and um, she's got a a nail pounded has been pounded through her tongue, and um, when I was working on it with the editor, I said, you know. We shot the scene and everything, and I said, you know, I don't think they're going to ever let me keep this in the movie. So we might as well cut it because it's not going to make it. It's not going to make it. Um, 
And um, that was a huge mistake, as it turned out. Because now every other woman's got a pierced tongue, it seems like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, the stuff that you think is, you know, so shocking. You know, there's a good, there's a reason you think it's shocking, and you should keep, the, you know, don't, don't cut any of the shocks. I feel like that's golden advice. So when it comes to filmmaking and writing and directing the there's a lot of books on the topic and a lot of courses on the topic a lot of which sure i mean let's face it bullshit um that being said were there any formidable resources or books that either helped you from a career perspective or from a creative perspective that you would recommend other aspiring directors check out well it was funny when i was working on reanimator um brian usna you know, wanted us to see every movie that had been made in the last 10 years, you know, every horror film. So so we had an idea of what was out there, and, and you know, we needed to top it somehow. And um, so we, we, you know, he, he basically, every weekend we'd go to his house for, you know, just watch, you know, several horror movies in a row. Um, and, I, and the one that really grabbed me and I realized was like a, a master's class in horror was Rosemary's Baby, and I, and I think that that you know people ask me what film school I went to, and I would say I went to Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> what was it about that movie that was so enlightening for you? I think it's it just got every you know it, it's very subjective. That's one of the things about it. The way it's shot is so f- fabulous. Um, and learning how you know. That's I think Polanski's great. One of his greatest uh, gifts is that he he is his stuff is makes you feel like it's happening to you, and uh, uh, and that's you know when you can do that, that's really really something. Um, and Rosemary's Baby, you know, you feel like you're Rosemary, um, and you know, you and you watch you have to watch it a bunch of times to realize how he's doing it. Yeah, you're making me want to check it out again. But yeah, that does make the the level of kind of uh, the confusion that he puts you through as the viewer watching that movie is very synonymous with what Rosemary must be feeling. I mean, it really drives a level of empathy that I think makes the movie that much more terrifying. I mean, not just through the use of POV shots, but there's there's a lot of it. You just it's very disorienting the entire movie, which is partially why it works so well. Yeah, but it's also very clear. And, and that's the other thing, is that I think that one of the things I've learned about horror is horror needs to be very simple. You know, it needs to, if it gets, if it gets too complicated, you know, if the audience, you know, I mean, Hitchcock used to say that he didn't do mysteries. You know, he didn't do, he, he didn't want to do, you know, he did suspense. And then it was, the difference between it was that in a, in a, in suspense, um, the audience knows more than the characters do, and then in a mystery, the the characters know more than the audience does. Um, so they're the opposites, right? And, and he didn't. And, and, and we, we, you know, he said the example he always used to give was about a bunch of people playing poker, and there's a bomb under the table, and he said, you know, you can make that a surprise you know they're playing poker and the bomb goes off and it's a shock and the shock lasts for like two seconds 
Or you can let the audience know that there is a bomb under the table while they're playing poker. And you can keep that suspense going for an hour. Uh, you know, um, so, I mean, Hitchcock is, you know, you know, he's, he's, he really is, you know, he knew what he was doing. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, a very common resource people point to in terms of filmmaking advice is the Truffaut Hitchcock, either book or documentary series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The book is great. Yeah. Was there any, um, any advice that was given to you either from other filmmakers or from somebody that, um, or any sort of mentor figure that really helped you throughout the course of your career that, that kept you on the path or put you on the path? No, other than I think, like I said, don't ever censor yourself. Um, you know, let yourself go. Let, let, let it, you know. Makes a lot of sense for, particularly for horror. Yeah, don't be, yeah, don't be, yeah, don't be afraid. You know, go to go where the material is taking you. Yeah. I feel like if you are scaring yourself, then you're starting to do the job right. If you have the inclination to censor yourself, if you're like, oh, I don't know if I should do this, then that means you, that is an indicator that no, you, you, now you have to do it because it scares you. A you better bit. do it. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, when, when you, you know, you're in the hands of a great filmmaker when you're going, oh my God, is he going to really do this? <laughs> <laughs> And yes, he is. Yeah. Uh, so, as long as he doesn't censor himself or herself. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know, you're you know, you're in the hands of a master. I mean, the one who the one who's like that for me is Cronenberg. Oh yeah. Well, Stuart, I can't thank you enough. This was uh, this was a whole lot of fun and a tremendous honor. I, I've been a tremendous fan of yours for a long time. You've been a big inspiration to me. So, uh, so thank you for so many years of so many good movies. Pleasure talking to you as well, and um, thank you. You know, and and, and uh, let me know what you feel. You know, after you've read the book, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on that. That sounds like it's going to be really, really fun. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is fun. Cool. Well, congratulations on the book. And uh, what's next for you, by the way? Gosh, good question. Um, I mean, this book has been something I've been working on for several years now. So, um, I'm I'm excited to get it out. You know, the fact that it's going to be be available and next march is great cool yeah i'm sure that's gonna keep you pretty busy so yeah once that's done then i think i'll i'll have some 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 ideas of things i want to do the next but right now it's really everything is centered on that book gotcha great well i'll be anxiously awaiting whatever it is you do next cool all right thank you again Stuart. this was great yeah thank you good talking to you bye-bye thank you take care All right. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know that I will always cherish it. So here's always are some directorial lessons from Mr. Stuart Gordon. Number one, never censor yourself. This perhaps is one of the most crucial pieces of advice for horror directors. Stuart's entire slate of movies are extremely subversive and at times downright perverse. A reanimated severed head going down on a woman is without a doubt one of the most iconic moments in cinema history to a sick bastard like me. But 
It never would have happened had Stewart censored himself. In fact, when they brought Reanimator to the MPAA, the film was given an X rating. So rather than edit the movie, Stewart, along with Charles Band and Brian Usena, decided to release the movie to theaters on rated, which was a very ballsy move back when it was released. But... This paid off in spades because the movie is an indelible classic. Had they censored themselves, what would Reanimator possibly have looked like? We're currently in a pretty amazing era where you can put out movies that are well removed from the judgmental eyes of the MPAA. VOD has given rise to some very extreme cinema. Movies like Terrifier, a Serbian film, Irreversible, The House That Jack Built, all pretty much do whatever the hell they want. And it's great. It is a brave new world. Independent directors are no longer beholden to censorship, so why do it? So there's adhering to institutionalized censorship like the MPAA. And then there's your own self-censorship. And Stewart has confronted both. If you're a horror director or a horror fan, in all likelihood, you're pretty hard to scare. Which is why it is the job of horror directors to scare the masses. Because if it scares you, it probably terrifies the average citizen. So if you're writing or conceiving of a film concept and you think it might be too extreme, or if it scares you even a little... It is your job as a horror director to confront that fear and make that movie. Arguably, one of the main purposes of horror is its unflinching confrontation of things like death, the taboo, deepest, darkest fears, and all matter of material that makes motherfuckers uncomfortable. Your job as a horror director is to find that line within yourself where things frighten you and then make a movie about it. If your movie idea makes you uncomfortable, that's a real good sign. That means you have to make it, as Stewart says. If you're scaring yourself, you're on the right track. Keep going or make a fucking rom-com. Number two, rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Stewart's theater background imbued him with a real appreciation for rehearsals. In fact, he would rehearse Reanimator from beginning to end as if it was a play, which his cast of primarily theater actors were entirely used to. As a result, the performances in the movie are extremely well done. The chemistry and tension between characters is palpable, and the movie pretty much hits every story beat that it sets out to. When you anchor a bonkers movie like Reanimator with believable performances and nuanced drama from actors who take the concept seriously, it is a golden combination. It allows your audience to take these very insane concepts seriously because it grounds the movie in realism. It's so easy for horror movies to descend into camp. The things that can bring your off-the-wall concept into the realm of realism are good performances. So cast wisely, rehearse, and consider theater actors. For more on this topic, listen to my interview with Knives and Skin director Jennifer Reeder. Number three, watch everything. When approaching Reanimator, Stewart and his longtime collaborator Brian Usna watched every single horror movie released in the past 10 years while they worked on the Reanimator script. This gave them a real awareness of what was working in the market as well as what the market was missing. Having such a deep awareness of the contemporary horror genre really helped them make something as dynamic and different as Reanimator. So take Stewart's advice and watch as much recent horror as you can. This way you can learn what the horror market has so you can deliver what it needs. Number four, level set with your cast and crew on day one. 
Stewart's movies are very specific in their mood, tones, and the overall worlds that he builds. When you have movies that are as specific as Stewart's, everybody working on them has to understand them, which is why communicating the vision of the movie to every last person on set is critical. It's no surprise that Stewart's movies are as cohesive as they are because he always made a real effort to get his cast and crew aligned. Stewart would kick off each movie by meeting with his entire cast and crew on the first day of production to tell them why he was making the movie. This ensured that everybody was on the same page, humming the same tune, and making the same movie. Considering all of the people that make up a cast and crew and post-production team, there are so many points of view and potential interpretations of things, as well as countless opportunities for details and nuances to be lost in communication. Communicating a clear vision of your film at the beginning counters this potential for misinterpretation. Anyway, thank you as always for listening and big huge thanks to Rachel Wilson for giving me this opportunity of a lifetime to speak with Stuart Gordon. He is very, very missed already in our community and uh, my deepest condolences to all of his friends and family. Thank you as always for listening. (laughs) 